Well, good morning. Not bad. Got to be honest, 9 o'clock service was a little more energetic right off the front. So there's room to improve. There's room to improve. That's the good news. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul's going to be clearing up um, a couple of points of confusion that are really important for us to uh, get cleared up. Uh, and so I started thinking about stories of, from my life, places where I was confused. And oh my goodness, there's so many stories to choose from, right? How do you choose just one? But uh, it was not so long ago, uh, we had some friends over, and they were uh, hanging out, and they wanted to teach uh, Rochelle and me to play this new game with them. And so we don't do tons of games and stuff like that, but I have a, a little bit of a problem with games because I'm hyper-competitive, right? It's, it's worth playing, it's worth winning, so let's go. And so here's this brand new game that I know nothing about, but I feel this deep internal compulsion to win. And so they were so excited about this game that they went real quick through the rules. And have you ever been part of a new game, right? And they're explaining the rules, they're not making sense, and they, oh, it's okay, you'll understand when you get there. So we start playing this game, only there's no understanding coming. And I am not getting it. And people are rolling dice and trading cards, and it's settlers of something, I don't even know. I don't know what was happening. But I will tell you this, I did not understand the rules, which moves were legal, which moves were not. I had no idea, like, why I would be motivated to play one way rather than another, and people are trading things back and forth, and I have no idea what's motivating them, and I'm starting to get really irritated, because as I don't understand, I know I'm not winning, and that's not sitting right with me. <laughs> and then I get to the point where it's like, I just don't even understand the purpose. I'm not, I don't understand why we're even doing this or where the finish line is on this thing. And so I lost. I, I think I lost really badly, but I don't even know that. They had to tell me when I had lost. Scott, you're, you're done now. It's over. You have lost. When this happens, you're done. It was terrible. And all because I didn't get the rules. I didn't get the motivations. I didn't get the purpose. I didn't get any of those things. And, I, and that's not a bad image for where some of us arrive in trying to understand how to live a life that is good by God's standards, how to live the good life. I mean, maybe we come to this point where we, for folks that have... Uh, have shared some faith with us. We understand, we've come to understand this story that God created a good and perfect world and then sin got in there and really messed everything up. And not just sin generally, but my sin personally has messed things up and created problems, right? And, and my sin is screwing things up for me. But then I, I learn in this story that Jesus came to take care of that and to redeem that, that he lived his life and did his ministry and he was crucified and raised from the dead all so that all the things I've done to mess up my life, God can forgive and make right and redeem. And I'm told that if I'll follow him and commit my life to following him, he's going to transform me and change me and enable me to live a new kind of life, the kind of life I was created to live, a good life. And so I go, yes, I'm in on all this. I want this to happen. And so, so tell me about this good life. And people said, well, it's really hard. Good luck. Where's the help with that? And I think a lot of us, it's not just maybe people who are new to faith, but I talk to people all the time who are long-term Christians who are a little confused about the good life, who we, just, we don't necessarily even understand what the rules are and what governs the rules of play. We don't necessarily understand which things are, are right and which things are not and what makes them that way. We don't necessarily understand what are the motivations that would compel us to live up to the expectations that God has laid down. And maybe most of all, we just don't even understand the purpose behind all of it. We're just 
a people sometimes who are unsure about what's good and what's right and how to figure that out, about how to go about living that, and about the whole point of what living a good life actually is. And this is the very issue that Paul is addressing in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. And so he writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice to God. So here's the first thing that Paul addresses about the good life and how to live it. He addresses the rule book. He addresses the standard by which followers of Jesus determine whether any given behavior or action or attitude or any of that, by which we determine are those things good and part of the good life God has called us to, or are these things in fact not good and prohibited by God? See, the simple fact is this, that there is a rule book for living the good life, and God has already written it. It's on, it is the Bible which we sometimes read as a leather-bound volume, right? It's the same Bible that we find on our, on our mobile phone. It's his word written down. And in the Bible, God shares with us his understanding, his direction, his description, and his prescription for what a good life is all about. And what he says here is this, follow God's example. What makes something good is because it reflects the example of who God is. Other translations say, and really rightly so, be imitators of God. If we imitate who God is, we're going to live a life that is good. And here is the idea. It's as simple as this, that the creator of all things, the God who has always been and who always will be, he is the one who gets to decide and to define what is good, what is right, what is acceptable, what is pure, what pleases him. Those decisions are his, not ours. The decisions about what is good and what is not good, what is pure versus what is impure, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, if you will, what's allowed and what's not allowed. As mere human beings, those decisions are way above our pay grade. Those are decisions and definitions which are the purview of God himself. And often, the unfortunate thing is this, we come across instructions in the Bible as we're reading that we just don't like. I run across them all the time. I don't like them because they're super challenging or they're hard to obey or they're difficult to live out or they're just inconvenient and frankly, I just don't like them. For instance, this whole love your enemy thing. Don't like that one. Doesn't feel right to me. It's inconvenient. It cuts across the grain of my overdeveloped sense of justice for other people. For myself, I'm all about the grace and the mercy, but I think other people need justice, and this love your enemy thing doesn't seem to play into that very well. And so we find these rules in God's rule book too challenging sometimes, or maybe just inconvenient, or maybe we just happen to think that they're old and that they're out of date and they don't apply anymore. This God who gives these instructions just doesn't seem in touch with the world that I'm living in, right? That that requires us to to uh, ask some difficult questions. In fact, we're going to get to do that here next week or the one after, but just in a little bit here in the book of Ephesians, we're going to run across a passage in Scripture which calls husbands to willingly lay down their lives sacrificially for their wives. And that same passage is going to call Christian wives to, as an expression of love for God and Christ, to submit to their husbands. 
I'm not teaching that passage. I'm pretty excited about it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but when that passage comes, for a lot of us, some of the things that we're going to hear are initially going to feel, hey, that's very old-fashioned. That's a little bit out of date. And we're going to learn some ways to understand what Paul's writing there that make a lot of sense even today. But I can, can I tell you before we even get there, we're going to wrestle with that feels old-fashioned, not out of date, and not up to the times. And when we run across whatever passages kind of cause that to rise up within us, we've got a tough question to ask because we have to ask, one, is it true that maybe God's just out of touch with the world I'm living in? Or is it possible that maybe I'm just out of touch with the world as he created it? One of those things has to be true. Either God's out of touch or I am. And that makes those inconvenient passages very, very sticky. You see, the scripture tells us that God created us in his image. But all too often when it comes to figuring out what's the right way to live, we like to create God in our image. I know exactly the kind of God I would like to serve. I prefer a God who's very tolerant, who's very patient and predictable, not too demanding, and frankly, one that loves the Seahawks more than any other NFL franchise. <laughs> That's the God I choose. That's the God that I prefer. Basically, I'm looking for a low-maintenance God who provides high-end blessings. That's the one I want. That's the God I'm going to worship. But it's interesting, when we find out that this God that we find in the Bible and through his instruction book and his rule book, we find some things that maybe don't sit right with us or that we don't like or that they're very challenging. And too often, it makes us just think, well, that's not the God I want to serve. Can I just be clear? We worship God. We don't vote for him. But too often we live like we're voting. Oh, I, I don't like God's new platform. He has changed directions. I know I voted for him last term, but I'm not voting for him now. We don't vote for God, we worship him. And if we come to the conclusion that he is God, then even if it's inconvenient, even if it's uncomfortable, and even if it's difficult, we have to concede that it's his rule book, not our will that must prevail. And, and if we're unwilling to do that, then let's just call that what it is, I'm God shopping, but I am not worshiping. That's something we have to come to grips with. But So there is this rule book that God has laid out. He has defined for us. He has showed us what the good life is. He's written it down. But even if we know the rules, there's another step that's involved, right? It's one thing to understand with our minds and to know and be able to identify, yes, this is good, or no, that's evil. Of course, we have to be able to do that. But if all we do is know it, but we don't live it, it's kind of a pointless endeavor. We have to get down to the business of living out the good life that God has described for us. And it takes an incredible amount of motivation to do that, especially the good life that God outlines for us. You see, we'll never be able to live up to that good life until we arrive at the purest of motives. We need to have the right motives for living the good life because if we don't, we're never going to get there. That's why Paul writes, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. What, motiv what ought to be motivating us to live the good life, to live a life that is good? It ought to be that we understand we are dearly loved children of God and that we love our Heavenly Father deeply. And out of that place of love and relationship, we are compelled, we are motivated to please Him in our behavior, in our conduct, in our attitudes, in the way that we live our life. 
And this is where we can miss it so badly. We can get bound up and frustrated and end up completely missing the relational point that God is making. Let me ask you, what, what motivates you to at least attempt to live the good life that God describes? Is it fear? For many people it is. Fear that if I do the right thing, uh, or if I do the wrong thing right now, there's going to be a flash of lightning and I'm toast. Or maybe that flash of lightning won't take place in this life, but it'll take, uh, take place in the hereafter and I'll be condemned eternally. For others, what motivates, them to, what motivates us to try is this sense of guilt and shame we get. Oh, I'm a horrible, wretched failure of a disappointment of a person if I, if I don't try. And we're motivated by the worst guilt and shame. Others of us battle with a sense of perfectionism, right? That what I have to do is wherever the bar is set, I'm going to attain that. And I'm not going to fail to attain that. And as if in a very legalistic way, right, that my very identity, my very value is tied up not in the fact that God created me and loves me and has a purpose for me. Oh, no. My value, my identity is tied to the fact that I can get over that bar. And so we labor and we strive and we clench our fists and we grit our teeth and we drum up all the willpower we can get and we hide all the evidence of our failures off to one side and we try because that's what's motivating us. And we miss the central piece of the gospel, that what God wants is relationship and that he offers it freely. That he says, I love you in spite of your failures and in spite of your successes. That before a day came along when you either succeeded or failed, did right or did wrong, before any of that, God says, I love you and want to extend an offer of relationship and heaven and uh, eternity to you. And you know this. If you're one of those people who are out there kind of sharing your story with neighbors and friends at work and stuff like that, and you're sharing how Jesus has become the hero of your story, and maybe you're even out there inviting them to invite Jesus into their story and see if he'll become their hero as well, you'll know that the most difficult thing for people to accept is that it's free, is that it can't be earned. There's something so innate in us as human persons, right, that says, no, I've got to earn it. I've blown it, that must disqualify me. Or I'll never, it's never valuable unless I do something to attain it myself. We miss that. And Paul seems to indicate here that the best motives should, that, that we should be striving for to live the good life is a sense of relationship with God. He is my dearly beloved father and I am a dearly beloved child. When my kids were young, like in a five-year-old range, I was a great parent, if I do say so myself. What I mean by that is this. When they were young and small, I could get them to do pretty much anything that I needed them to do. I was bigger. I was faster. I was smarter. I was more strategic, right? I had it all going for me. And even if they wanted to just completely disobey and rebel, I, I could manage that. And I could, I could generate the outcome that I wanted. But somewhere around the time they, they were around five, I remember one day I just, I kind of plotted the trajectory about how much more energy I was using to stay ahead of the game and how much harder I was having to think to stay ahead of their logic and, and how the gap between my reasoning and their reasoning abilities was shrinking. And I realized that, that by the time they were six and a half, they were going to win. <laughs> and I've already told you, I don't like to lose. <laughs> and, and so I realized in that moment and at that time, there's got to be something more than just applying more external pressure 
or appealing to their sense of accomplishment or whatever else may be. And I realized in those moments that in order to maintain any level of sanity for the rest of my life, I was going to have to connect with my kids at a different level than being able to outwit them and outthink them and outplay them. And so began a journey of getting to know their hearts and to understand their hearts and having them open their hearts to me and get to know them better and better and to create this relational close place that became a motivation of my behavior towards them and hopefully a bit of a behavioral motiva um, motivation for their behavior towards me where there could be a, a doting, loving dad and beloved children saying, we can all work out the behavior thing because the relationship is so fixed and so solid. That, that should be the way our behavior in response to God is motivated. Not out of prizes and rewards, not out of fear and punishments, not out of legalistic, perfectionist attempts to try and be perfect, but simply to say there's a God who loves me deeply, and I love him in return. And out of that, I want to imitate him. I want to become like him. I want to live the life he's calling me to because of that relationship. Because anything other than that, the legalism, the perfectionism, the hard work, all the effort, that is a tough taskmaster, right? It, I mean, there can be admirable effort towards trying to improve myself and do a better job and behave better and to overcome all those failings and weaknesses and addictions. We can try really hard, but if we're trying the wrong way and with the wrong motives, we accomplish nothing. You familiar with Stonehenge, right? I think I got a, we got a picture of that right, the circle of rocks and everything, and for years and years and centuries, everyone wondered, what's it there for, and, and where did it come from, right? And so it's been a, a, thing of, a point of speculation for a while. Well, in 1923, scientists at least figured out part of the equation. They figured out where those stones came from, and they were able to identify about uh, 190 miles away from the site of Stonehenge, they identified the quarry from which those stones came which I don't know how they do that. They're scientists, they're smart, and that's why they get to do those sorts of things, but they figured out. So, so began the quest of study of the quarry 190 miles away from the site of Stonehenge. And for 90 years, they ran tests, and they experimented, and they hypothesized, and they imagined, and they calculated, doing everything they could to find out as much as they could of, about the place from which these stones originated. And then, in the year 2013, the discovery was made, they'd been looking at the wrong quarry. <laughs> Another science, uh, scientist identified a couple of miles away the quarry that actually provided those stones, which meant that for 90 years, scientists had been doing their very best and applying all of their effort as hard as they could, as best as they could, as sincerely as they could to a task that was accomplishing nothing. That means two generations of scientists gave their entire careers to nothing. It's not that they weren't working hard. It's, weren't, it's not that they weren't doing due diligence. They were just doing it the wrong way. And that's us with righteousness and the good life. I don't want to get 90 years down the road at the end of my days and go, I tried so hard for so long. I, I was sincere I was struggling, I made the effort, I was trying, only to realize at the end, I've been digging in the wrong place. The place I should have been looking was in relationship with God. I should have spent less time trying harder and more time just loving the God who loves me so graciously and so powerfully 
and so deeply because that's what produces our ability to live the good life after all. God wrote the rule book, right? And by his grace, he's given us a relationship which can motivate us, motivate us to live up to that. But there's still one more element to look into, and that's kind of the purpose of the whole thing. Why are we doing all of this? Why does God care how I live? What difference does it make anyway? Yes, I'm told to follow God's example as a dearly loved child. But then it says, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, Jesus is our example here. His entire existence here on earth, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of those things were not some kind of self-improvement program for him. He was not the point of his whole existence. The whole point of his existence was everybody else. And so he gave himself up to that purpose that exists outside of himself that everyone else might receive the benefit of that. And then we're called to follow that example and to walk in the way of love for others just as Christ did, right? Have you ever stopped to think that you may not be the end game of God's activity in your life? Yes, God is active in your life. Yes, he has purposes for you. But have you considered the possibility that maybe God's purpose for you is something that's even outside yourself? There are a few options for what that might mean. Here's one. Take a look at this. Mistakes are the realization it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. That's encouraging. <laughs> now, fortunately, I think maybe God has some other things in mind for us than just being a negative example. I certainly hope so that way. There's, there's more to your existence and to my existence and to God's work in us as a people than just what he does in us. God calls us to obey him and walk in obedience to him and to live a good life before him, not just for the things it'll produce for us, but because of the way it empowers us to make a difference in the lives of others that way. You see, the ultimate purpose of living the good life, it goes way beyond you. It goes beyond who you are, it goes beyond who you feel, and it goes beyond what you will accomplish. It goes beyond. Now, I will say this, if you live the life that God says is good, if you follow his instructions, if you're doing the things that he says as he's revealed them, will it improve you and make you a better person? Absolutely. Will you become more Christ-like and more honorable and more truthful? Absolutely. Will it transform all of your relationships and will it make them better? It absolutely will. But what God wants to do in you is not just a self-improvement program. See, God has a, problem, uh, has a program in play, and it's not just to redeem you personally and you personally and me personally. It's God's desire to redeem and to, and to save the entire created order. He, he created things in the beginning, and from the moment sin entered into the garden through the failings of Adam and Eve, he began the process of redeeming, of restoring, and making it whole. In the very moment of, of recognition of their sin, he begins telling them the story of the redemption that is to come, that one will come who will strike down the head of the serpent, right? And he begins the process of, of saving and redeeming not just mankind, 
but all of creation as well. And all of this will culminate, Scripture says, at the day when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and all is restored. So in the grand scheme of the redemption of the cosmos that began at creation and ends at the renewal of all things, my scrappy little life is kind of chump change. I mean, it's important to me, but God has bigger things in mind than just me. And I want to challenge you maybe this morning to say, to think about maybe developing a larger picture of what God does in your life than just you. And to say, God wants to use you as part of redeeming the whole thing. So that part of what might motivate you and compel you to keep living this good life he calls you to would be this strong desire to be able to love others as Christ did. To grow in your ability to understand the purpose of your existence, not just serving as a negative example of mistakes and what they can accomplish, but to be, come to an understanding of your whole existence to be designed around the purpose of loving others sacrificially. To follow up on Jesus' example, whose whole existence was for the purpose of others. And so as we get ready to leave here today, I want to challenge you. And at various points throughout the morning, different ideas, different thoughts, they may have resonated with you. And I want to suggest, uh, I want to suggest this idea, that at whatever point some thoughts or some ideas were resonating within you, or where, where you felt kind of a finger being placed on a particular area of your life where change is required in response to this, I want to suggest um, that may not just be the result of a compelling, attractive speaker who knows exactly what he's doing. I want, to, I want to suggest that's probably not the case whatsoever. I want to suggest that the Holy Spirit does what he does. He takes human weaknesses and uses them to accomplish his purpose. And if some part of what I've been saying this morning touches some part of your life, don't think of that as me. Think of that as the Spirit of God himself saying, there's a work I would like to do. There's a point at which I would like to make your life closer to the good life that's described. There's a purpose that I have for you broadly and grandly in the scope of a kind of a whole cosmological renewal, but it begins with a simple yes on your part. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And in a moment, I'm going to pray for all of us. But I want to highlight just a few things by way of review. There are some of you who, this morning, you felt the challenge. And you realize that perhaps you got into the habit of just writing up writing off some of God's commandments and some of God's rules as less relevant than others. Maybe because they're outdated or maybe because you just didn't like them. And this morning, you may have been challenged by the idea uh, that you've maybe been more voting for God on occasion than worshiping Him with your life. And if that's you, I'm calling you out and saying, that's got to change. It's time to say, God, I'm all in with all of what you reveal, and I'm going to need your help living that out. So that's some of us are there. Others of us um, are maybe reeling from a long, lifelong background that says the things that motivate your behavior are these external things like fear or guilt or shame. Depending on how you were raised and what the tone and the tenor of your home was, it may be really difficult to even imagine what it looks like to be motivated by a loving relationship and your loving Heavenly Father and have that do the trick. Maybe you're one of the ones who day in, day out just agonizes to get past your own sense of having to earn and having to be enough and having to prove your worth and your value. 
And if that's you, I want to call you out this morning. And it's time to allow God to begin the deep work of changing your thinking and your experience that way. It's time to begin spending less time trying hard and more time just loving God. And then maybe others of you, what has resonated really has been the sense of, hey, I understand God's calling the shots and I've, I've done a decent job letting him do that in my life. But somehow it hasn't got past me to others. And while I've made my life look good, it's just a life set on the shelf that's not having the impact on others. I've not yet really lived my life as if I exist outside myself to bless and love others. And if that's you, I'm calling you out and saying it's time to step up. It's time to make a change and to begin this week allowing God to lead you and guide you in the best ways of loving others. So Heavenly Father, this morning, at whatever point your Holy Spirit has been uh, causing these ideas to stir within our heart. God, those specific places of application where we're going, "Uh uh-oh, I I know exactly where God's at work. God, in those places, um, we want to at first acknowledge and say, God, we need you. We need you. God, at whatever places we've felt the challenge in our spirit, we want to lay down our flesh, lay down our futility, lay down whatever false pride exists and say, God, we, we confess We've not been doing it right. We've not been doing it well. We need to do better. God, would you cause us to love your law? And God, would you pour out a deeper sense on us how much you love us? And God, would you show us the places where we can love others better? And God, my prayer for this group assembled here today in this place is that as they go forward into this week, God, you'd cause the echoes of this morning to keep ringing. And that in the conversations we have tonight and tomorrow at work and throughout the week, on the soccer field and in the library and wherever we're going, God, would you continue to echo within our heart the things that you're saying to us? And God, would you empower us to live the good life that you are entitled to describe and to find? God, would you pour out love into our hearts so that we're doing it out of a motive of devotion to you? And God, would you put your love for other people inside of us so that we can reflect it adequately? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what this all means is we got some homework to do. And by us, I mean us, because I'm seriously included in all of it. So as you go today, I'm challenging you, eyes open for the opportunities. I'm just silly enough to believe that in the next few days, you're going to have opportunities to put into practice and to apply in super practical ways the stuff we've been talking about here today. And when you do, I pray God's victory rise up and empower you as you live out your loving relationship with him. Have a great rest of your weekend.